0: Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. Welcome, everybody. This is the Yale ISM podcast, interviewing our Institute of Sacred Music Fellows. My name is Ben Bond. I am a second-year student here at Yale Divinity School and a member of the ISM. Uh, With me today is Dr. Kadula, uh, expert in African Christian music, and uh, we're so excited to have you today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I guess we could just get uh, started with hearing about yourself, uh, what your name is, where you're from, where do you teach, and uh, what is your area of expertise? And lastly, what brought you to the ISM, and what is your project here? It would be great for our listeners to hear little about yourself.
1: So my name's are Jean Goya. According to the British system, they always put your father's name on top of your name. So my father's name is in all my certificates. So that's the Kidula part. But if I were to go back to my village, nobody even calls me Kidula. They just call me Jean on Goya. I was born in a village in Kenya called goibe It was kind of a village where a lot of people migrated to Uh, as part of the British uh, system of relocating people to places where they felt there was resistance against British rule, So they'd move the people that were in that area and then bring other people into that area. So my grandfather ended up in that village. And even if you relocated, you still had to buy land. So he bought a lot of land. And... A few years later, he converted to become a Pentecostal, and the Pentecostals were setting up a mission station in that village. They were looking for some land, so he gave them some of his land to set up a mission station. They built a mission station there. They built a church. They built a school, actually two schools, because there were two different language groups that were in the village. Initially, one of them was called, well, a part of a, a group of languages that are called Kalenjin and a group of languages that are called Luya. But out of that group, there are subgroups. So my grandfather is a Maragoli. Technically, that's what outsiders call us. We are patrilineal, so I'm Maragoli. But my mother was a different ethnic group called so I guess I'm by cultural (laughs) by that definition like that so I went to school partly in the village and when I became 10 years old my parents took me to a boarding school that was normal practice uh, that it's still done in Kenya um, for kids either in high school go to boarding school But you can start earlier, and I started in sixth grade in a different part of the country. Then I went to high school in a different part of the country. Then I went to university in a different part of the country. And eventually I landed in the U.S. studying piano pedagogy. Went back to Kenya, was teaching, came back to the U.S. to do my master's and Ph.D. eventually. My master's was in musicology, my Ph.D. in ethnomusicology. Because ethnomusicology was the only way I could I could study African music. That's how I landed over there. My first degree was actually music education. So I started teaching in high school. And then after I did my piano pedagogy diploma in Indiana, I went back, taught in high school for another year and a half. I taught music and French because French was my second teaching language. And then I was asked by the university to start teaching at the university. Western music history, music theory, Musicianship, composition, African dance, uh, stuff that uh, they thought I was good at. (laughs) So I taught that for a number of years before I did my master's, went back to teach there, did my PhD, and got a job at the University of Georgia, but had to go back to Kenya because I came on a Fulbright, and then the University of Georgia invited me back, so I came back. So I've been at the University of Georgia for a number of years now. They asked me to teach ethnomusicology, but technically I perceive myself more as an African musicologist rather than an ethnomusicologist just because of the historical and colonial drama that accompanies the idea of ethnomusicology Mm
0: -hmm.
1: as the study of the other. Because I don't study the other, I study who I am. Yes. (laughs) so I, I conceive of myself as an African musicologist. I love that. I've always worked with religious music, whether it's ritual African music or Christian music or the intersections of Christianity with African cultures, which also includes the intersection of African stuff with Islam and with Indic beliefs because of the way the British worked in Kenya.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I've kind of been brought up very aware of other religious traditions outside of Christianity, and I work with that. And the music that I study, I take into account that fact that there may have been some kind of pure African music. I really don't think so because people <laughs> were always interacting with each other even before colonialism Um made that interaction much more intense.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. In East Africa, we've had Arabic and Indic influences for a long time because of where it's located. Mm -hmm. Almost at the same time as Christianity arrived in the interior, Islam also arrived. So we grew up with the sounds of Islam and Christianity and the sounds of different kinds of indigenous religions. And then because the British always traveled with people from South Asia, we were keenly aware of Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism and Jainism. They are just part of uh, the soundscape that we grew up with.
0: Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. And what brought you to the ISM and and what uh, are you working on while you're here?
1: Okay. So ISM was attractive to me because of the intersection of music and religion. Because I did... The majority of my work on music and religion the blend of theological stuff with musical stuff was attractive and just reading about some of the things that happen at ISM I could also see that that while there's a huge focus on Christianity there is awareness of other religious systems that come out of West and South Asia mm-hmm. in in different ways so I was curious about how that works.
0: I'd like to offer up an important context for this conversation today and consider the ways in which colonialism and the presence and history of white supremacy, as we've discussed in our course together, Dr. Vidula, have made Africa the continent and its people often perceived as a monolith in the West and how that's a really dangerous and destructive um, hermeneutic lens from which to operate. And I think it's really important that we have a conversation about the importance of dispelling that hermeneutic and providing an important decolonized way of approaching this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I I don't know if there's a way that you can talk about this current moment framing conversation about race and colonialism and decolonialism because of the current moment in which we are in. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of sensitized the public to issues that a lot of people have been living with and ways that they have been mitigated in different times. And at this time it's on the forefront of everybody's minds because of what is happening i don't know if there's a way you can do that without um as part of the moment that we are in and how the moment that we are in brings particular things to the forefront so issues of race are very potent right now Mm -hmm. issues of colonialism and decolonializing curriculum are on the forefront now and the fact that they have been lived by so many people around the world and the rate of change has been apparently really slow. It's like every generation starts to come to terms and grips with it when uh, a tragedy happens, which is a pity. Mm. But it, would, it takes a tragedy and tragic events for people to actually start to recognize what's happening in their neighborhood or in their
0: country at a global scale. You've given us so much to chew on uh, with all of the offerings you've given us today, Dr. Gudula, so far. The idea of when you talk about being an African musicologist as opposed to an ethnomusicologist, and I think it might be useful for, for our listeners to know the history of, of what led to the the inception of ethnomusicology. It's, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand in my own background and, and study of this, um, was a colonial project as a lot of disciplines within the academy of studying music outside of the west and I, i'm curious you know kind of a, a twofold question what life experiences prompted this desire to study african music in the context of religion for you um i know your book music in kenyan christianity talks a bit about this and we've read this in class and how could that life experience and and your experience in the academy inform how to move past that or or dismantle that colonial lens in which ethnomusicology is done and what your thoughts on what discipline could look like or should look like it's a bigger question but i'm curious what your thoughts are
1: yeah that's <laughs> that's that would take like a long time to break down let me try to frame it very simplistically, mm-hmm. by first acknowledging the fact that ethnomusicology was a gateway for musics that were not Western classical or art mm-hmm. to get into the academy. Yes. that there was So that is how I initially got into it. Mm -hmm. Because I I did not want to study Western music. That is what I studied in school. Because when you went to school, that's what you studied. You studied all the classical composers and up up to wheresoever they were, the music history classes. By the time I was finishing my degree, maybe my first degree, maybe the person that we were looking at, people like Harry Patch, the minimalist school, you know, uh, getting into other avant-garde types of. Of music like that so you study all that from the whensoever the western canon thinks it started so as a result i actually enjoy performing you know medieval renaissance baroque stuff just because i think my voice i'm a singer my voice fits there well and i like uh, thinking through some of the things that they do and i think there are some other complexities there that are interesting for me uh, like that. And I contrast it with modern stuff. I think I had too much diet of uh, Baroque classical, romantic, impressionist stuff. Too much of it. So in my last year as an undergraduate, I was tired of Western music's, mm-hmm. the development, the way it had developed. I, I was kind of tired of listening to, to it in that way. I thought there are other systems. There are other systems of thinking about music had a teacher called Mary Oyer, American uh, lady, who was teaching us Western music history as part of the larger artistic traditions that happened in whatever period she was talking about. So she she would take us through the painters of the time, the architects of the time, the artists of the time, and the music of the time, and 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 make these interrelations because I think it was part of what was happening in her world. So she introduced us to it that way. So it was interesting for me when I first went to Europe, just walking through cathedrals and other places like that and sounding in there and thinking about the kind of sound that my voice teacher expected me to have and the acoustics in there versus the acoustics wheresoever I was doing whatever I was doing and how chambers tend to shape even soundings, I was fascinated by that. At one time I considered studying physics seriously. And so you can understand that from, you know, all that stuff fascinated me. So when, she's, when she saw my reaction in class to the Western stuff that she was doing, she made me, I just happened to be really good with my ear. And when I was younger, I, I could probably reproduce something that you could have sung maybe three days ago. I could transcribe it verbatim. It, it, it was just a skill that I was good at. And she, she, she and my high school teacher called Mulindi King, when they recognized that, they thought they should give me exercises beyond the Western trajectory. To see how I would transcribe African pieces. So they gave me the Hugh Tracy collection. Hugh Tracy is a, was a, a British South African who went around British East Africa, British Africa actually, maybe went into some Francophone countries collecting sounds because there was projects in the 40s and 50s where they thought African cultures are dying. So there were collectors, they were not only African, they were doing Native Americans, they were doing everybody because they thought these were gonna die because of um, all the technology and the modern stuff that was coming. So he, he went around collecting all kinds of pieces of music from everywhere in British East Africa. I think he went to West Africa too, I can't remember. But there's, there's a series that you can find in um you can google them the Hugh Tracy series and they gave me those series to transcribe because I was bored in class I would finish my work before all my classmates did and sit there and look so they thought they should keep me busy and that made me um aware that there are other systems because what I was transcribing did not fit the Western stuff that I had been transcribing. It was a different kind of system. Sometimes I didn't find, this is way before all this technology stuff that you have with all these different programs that you have or transcription programs where you can add this and take out that as you transcribe. I was doing it by hand and I thought this is insane we should be able to figure out how to systematize different African music systems because there are obviously many different kinds and they don't fit the African mold because what is African is problematic. You may think about African-Americans as being African because of how they were racialized that way and the way they were denied their cultures And and so they had to create something that was African or came out of an African ethos. And as they talked with one another, they created this stuff that, you know, people recognize as jazz or blues or whatever. But if you are on the continent, uh, whoever is in Nigeria may be doing a completely different kind of thing than the South African so I was thinking, all these different spaces, people have different kinds of systems. And I'm reading these books that behave as if there's one overarching African thing. And I'm just like, no, there isn't. Because by doing these huge Tracy transcriptions, I can see there are different kinds of systems and they're not Western systems. They're different scales, there are different ways people configure structure. There's difference. How, how can people spend 10 hours singing the same song and you think it's just repetition that you can put out there like a minimalist thing. There must be something else happening within that system that holds people's attention for 10 hours. And that's what I wanted to explore. Being that I'm a girl and stuff, um, it was much harder for me to get into the male space. You know, one of my teachers actually wanted me to do a more dance-oriented thing because dances are events that incorporate theater and song and it's, they wanted me to do something like that because I was kind of good at that but I knew that the dance message is there wasn't enough vocabulary in the dance in dance scholarship at that time for me to figure out how how to represent it it was bad enough that I have training in music and I'm still frustrated but I was very familiar with the religious stuff. I grew up listening to and performing and composing <laughs> in the church. And my church had a variety of pieces. We had, I come out of a Pentecostal background. So we had all that African stuff. And then we had we had Canadian missionaries. So we had whatever was happening in the States. Um, I, I remember when All oh Happy Day came out, we were singing it to people because we were brokers. I was I was in a group with my sisters, and then I was also in a, I was in several groups, like religious groups. The secular part, I just played, accompanied people who played secular things because I like to play instruments. Uh, but I was in a group, and working with recording was also familiar because when I was 14, we made a recording with my sisters that was played on Kenyan radio for a long time. So this was very familiar ground for me. I would not need entry behavior. What I needed was to analyze the music and what it means, the sounds, what the sounds mean beyond just the lyric. And then how people work with those sounds to make meanings for themselves, religious meanings that fit in their worldview and in their religious space. That's how I came to start doing ethnomusicology because the only discipline that I felt worked with with African music was ethnomusicology. And when I went there, I had a lot of resistance from some of my teachers, my music teachers, because they felt there isn't enough in there that has been done for me to do analysis, because I also like analysis a lot. And and I was like, well, so we have to make sure that we have stuff out there that can then be analyzed. Otherwise, who's gonna collect it and who's gonna do it? If it's not us. Yeah. And I also think it it's it's it, it's it's good for self understanding to study your own people also. Because I think that the early ethnos really studied other people so much. Uh, and and then created these grand theories about the world from studying other people, and because they ignored themselves, that's part of why there are atrocities because they didn't examine themselves or study themselves in that way. I don't know. I'm I'm speculating at this point. <laughs> so um, studying religious music because the religiosity that had been assumed or ascribed to African people was... It it, it was like one of those generalizations that African people are religious. And if that generalization was repeated everywhere, it was repeated everywhere uh, without the notion that part of the colonial project was to introduce a way of life that was called Christian without recognizing that that Christianity that was introduced by Westerners was enmeshed within a Western cultural uh, worldview, with Western expressions. So people argue about those things, but you have to understand what's behind it. And then once it gets, it, it meets with people with a different worldview, how do those people, under threat of death and for survival, how do they embrace it and what do they do with it, that then turns it into who they are in the moment that they are in because of, how they have to survive and how to live. So long answer to your question of how I got into it. I got into it because I, I felt there are other music systems in the world. One of the safest places for me to study it as a young girl was to look at, at the church because what was happening in the church didn't sound like what the West was doing. It was a different thing that was happening in there. So I wanted to look at what is it that is happening there in this moment which is also an ethno project because a long time ago, ethnos studied people in the moment and always thought that these people are always staying in the moment, not recognizing the histories. So where I have moved to in this project that I'm doing at Yale is now looking at history, trying to construct the history of the development of those styles uh, and all the accoutrements that come with that.
0: Absolutely. And what's the uh, work that you've decided to, to work on while you're here?
1: Okay, so my project that I'm doing right now, I work with religious popular music. That's part of what I do. This particular project, I started it as a PhD student working with the gospel music industry. And the gospel music industry in Kenya has a symbiotic relationship with musics from Tanzania, from South Africa, from Zimbabwe, from the Congos. Partly because um, for a long time, Kenya in East Africa was the center for the recording industry. Mm. So people from all the different East African and Central African countries would come there to record. Central Africa, the Congo's Central African Republic, Rwanda Burundi, they came partly also because of unrest in their countries. Their footprints or their sound prints are part of the Kenyan soundscape. Partly because of that, but also because of policies that the Kenya government had in the 60s and 70s when uh, the then president, recognizing that music is really a powerful agent for political statements, uh, as you've seen in civil rights movements and other things like that, literally banned music in Kenyan languages on the airwaves unless it was like celebratory of the big events, you know, big um, political rituals that we had. So people growing up at that time, the popular music that was listened to was maybe Congolese, Tanzanian jazz, blues, Motown, that whole complex that comes out of the U.S., then whatever soft rock stuff that was coming out of Europe, Whatever English-speaking countries we had in common, whatever music came out of there, we listened to it. And of course, because of uh, missionaries, Christian missionaries from all over the world, we also had those sounds as part of what was going on. And one of the weirdest things was at Christmas, because you also have Diwali festivals, and and the government would actually uh, broadcast Diwali sounds, Indic sounds, during that festivals of light and those Indian festivals that that were there. So Christmas is kind of this very interesting thing where you listen to Jim Reeves and then you also listen to some Indian Diwali musicians. (laughs) Uh, We knew it was different and it was not about Christmas, but it was part of the soundscape. In the 80s, the next president started to look for a Kenyan sound. And because of the politics of the time, he felt safest promoting a Christian religious music sound, whatever that was. And he wanted it, uh, when he started the program that I I am looking at, uh, they started by just having the music sung in English or Kiswahili language, rather than any of the ethnic languages. But as the industry developed, people started singing in all kinds of languages. So the programming of the the TV program that that president used to promote as a political message musical message or messaging in that was cloaked in Christian rhetoric the program was called Sing and Shine. Hmm. It was a nationalizing project and it was also a christianizing project. Mm-hmm. So it had it had that dual thing. So I have looked I had looked at the Christianizing aspect of it really seriously, and you have to look at lyrics, look at the theology, and all kinds of things like that. But I hadn't really examined the political implications. And and Christianity with colonialism is a potent political merger Mm -hmm. in the ways in which it was introduced in Africa. It was potent that way. There are people who are very serious about Christianizing Africa and there were others who saw that as an opportunity to, to get to the people on the continent for colonial purposes. And sometimes people are not sure where one ended and where one began in certain mission organizations. But it, I mean, if you go to any country in Africa, depending on who colonized them, You will start to recognize the imprint of the colonial power that was established in that space Mm -hmm. so for example if you go to a lot of the francophone countries there's a lot of catholicism it doesn't mean there aren't catholics elsewhere but that was the bigger religion christian religion that was dominant of course, there are other things that are happening there all the time as well, but that was the state religion, let me put it that way. So technically in Kenya, the state religion was Anglicanism because we were British. If you mm-hmm. go to a German colony, you'll find a lot of Lutheran type musics in that sense. So you start to see um, that relationship between European politics and the way they use religion being played out in the continents as well. hmm So my project, uh, I started to look at how this particular president, whether consciously or unconsciously, uses that model because the country itself is a colonial setup. Mm -hmm. It's made up of many different peoples, all of them who had their own different kinds of musics, uh, who are Christianized, by the way, by different organizations, uh, if, if you if you start to study the history, the the religious history of any British colony, it's not just the Anglicans who are there. Uh, There are Presbyterians because you have the Scottish Presbyterian group also coming in there. Then you have Methodists and you have Pentecostals. Mm -hmm. It's like a hodgepodge of Mm -hmm. different religious organizations. Think about it. You have a hodgepodge of religious organizations and a hodgepodge of languages and cultural groups. So what that president did is to look for a language that um, can reach everybody. Mm -hmm. And the language of instruction in school and government business was English. And the language for trade and the general public was Kiswahili. And it's not just spoken in Kenya, it's spoken in many different parts of Eastern Africa along the coast of Mozambique, all the way from Mozambique to Somalia, you, 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 you find Kiswahili. Uh, for, for the purposes of evangelism, that was also great because then they could reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So he takes um, this program "Call Sing and Shine. What made it extremely popular was it was the first program in Kenya on TV in color. So that already was something that was amazing, that it's on TV in color, not black and white. (laughs) And then on top of being that, because he he was looking for a middle ground and popular music was kind of contentious from the previous regime in all the subtle things that you could say with popular music that could also be said with Christian music, but not everybody would be reading the same message. (laughs) Um, we'd be interpreting that message the same way, given the diversity of cultures. Mm -hmm. So people will tend to try to figure out what is the actual biblical uh, meaning of this rather than what is the subtext in there. Although there were songs that existed that everybody knew were more politically motivated, such as songs about traitors, which uh, would be clothed in the story of how Judas... Betrayed Jesus. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But it was, everybody knew those particular songs were about politics because we had had an attempted coup when there was a preponderance of that kind of song. So for my project I yell. I'm trying to see religion is, it's is political. It is political. Uh, but when you have this added layer of overt political use, of religious music, but which is also doing the work of moralizing the public and at the same time nationalizing a disparate group of citizens. It becomes, you can read all kinds of things in there. So I have been trying to put together an argument for this political side from both the religious angle and the pure politics of nationalism. And how they worked together for a number of years until other types of political agenda, internal and external, that led to a different kind of call for the governors of the country starting in the 90s, created a much more diverse linguistic and stylistic variety of music. So you have more languages than just English and Kiswahili, and you have more styles than just um, soft CCM type, chorus type, hymn type, uh, to people uh, blatantly looking for styles outside of mainstream conservative expression. So uh, people are looking at indigenous styles that they rework into modern contemporary form because they're also marketing, because now it becomes an industrial product. So this product is, is, is bigger than just a Christian product. It is a national product and it's a commercial product. So I'm trying to trace that. I, I, my, I had a very big project when I came here and, and I've been reading around because I wanted to actually recount the history of the commercialization of christian music as pure evangelistic stuff moving into this national project into this commercial project into this global project that is about it's a it's even much more interesting musically religiously for a number of reasons that are related to like the spread of Pentecostalism in in Africa in this century, in unprecedented ways, that make the music resonate beyond the continent.
0: So Dr. Kutula, the heart of our mission here at the Institute of Sacred Music, as you know, is interdisciplinarity between the study of religion and music. And I'm curious, what role has interdisciplinarity played in your work throughout your career?
1: So ethnomusicology is actually interdisciplinary. Music, And religion I think play very well into that idea of interdisciplinarity because religion encompasses different kinds of disciplines Mm. from philosophizing to theologizing to missionizing. Mm -hmm. What ethno actually brought to music studies was providing better historical context, cultural context linguistic context, and that already plays into interdisciplinarity. And anyway, being an African, oh man, music is studied, and informs so many disciplines. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In the reconstruction of African history, people have looked to music. In thinking about belief systems that Africans have, like indigenous belief systems, whatever those are, people look to music. Uh, Recounting oral literatures, Mm -hmm. people look to music. And it's not just music uh, alone. The idea of musicking in African context many times involves uh, the merger of even different arts, Mm
0: -hmm. where you
1: have theater in a musical event or a ritual Mm -hmm. that, you know, you have in a ritual, let me just say in a ritual, you might have theater in there you might have poetry in there, you have people costumed. So you have uh, that, that side of it. You will have dance, you'll have rhetoric, like oratory, mm-hmm. all kinds of things that happen in an event to the point that uh, scholars like Ruth Stone will talk about music and kind of blanket it as a constellation of the arts. So music is a part of the arts, but even within a musical event, you have arts. Yes. Different kinds of arts. Absolutely. So when you think about interdisciplinarity, music is interdisciplinary in ethno thinking. That's what it brought to the table that even musicologists took up. And religion is also interdisciplinary. Yes. So that's a very dense group of disciplines that come together.
0: It's a beautiful uh, canvas. Thank you so much, Dr. Gadula. This has been an absolutely enlightening, engaging, and insightful conversation. i um, so grateful for your wisdom and to benefit from all of the effort and labor of love that you put into this work throughout your whole life. And we're excited, happy to have you on this podcast. Thank you for having me. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.